Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here by the grace of God, also because he's hilarious and makes guys like me pastors. And we are in the book of Jonah. Is, is Beg here? Where's Beg? Chris here? Is Chris here? Oh, he's back there. I complimented him, I think, last week or the week before on the graphic. And I wanted to do it in person. I just think it's the best graphic he's ever done. Right? Look at that. It's retro. It's texture. It's art deco. It's got depth, yet it's flat. It's epic. It's so good. So, who's here for the first time in the study of Jonah? Who's just back fresh? Is it, what is it, Channel Islands folk? Is it college folk? You got CLU, you got, I met Tristan from CLU in the back. We got first timers maybe, returners from the summer. So, what's this? <laughs> oh, okay. Like, I'm sort of yes on this one, but also no at the same time. <laughs> So we're in Jonah, an Old Testament, a minor prophet, just means a, a shorter prophet, doesn't mean he was any less than the other prophets, but it's a really short book, which is cool. Uh, it's just action-packed, and this is like super short chapter, 10 verses, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, as I always do, I'm going to find a way to make it about an hour and 10 minutes, you know, it's just, it could be three verses, we're just going to be here till 12 o'clock, so. Open up to Jonah chapter 3, I'll pray, we'll do a little work, and then we'll do worship. Jonah 3. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, just uh, just as I ask almost every week, it's certainly in my heart, I, I just need your help to teach. Um, you're the only one that can, that can turn a speech into a sermon, and so I ask that you do that. I, I ask that, and I trust that you've brought exactly who you wanted to bring tonight, and not a single person more. You brought exactly who you desired to be here tonight for this section of, of the word that you authored, that you interpret and ultimately that you stamp into our hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, just take over. Um, just, just be glorified, Jesus. We know that the Holy Spirit seeks to glorify you. And so, um, we just thank you for this book. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for the new faces. We thank you for the returning faces. We thank you for those that have been here the whole summer. Um, we just ask that uh, this would be a time that is a sweet aroma to you in heaven. And so, uh, be glorified, Jesus. We love you. Can't wait to see you again. And now we uh, study in your name. Amen. So we are in the book of Jonah. Um, and as I kind of said last week, it's just, it's one of those stories that everyone's heard. Uh, you could just, you could have, oh, Chris is here. Everyone clap for the graphic that Chris did. Outstanding. Best graphic. Dane has still not written me a song for my sermon series, but you did give me the best graphic. And so um, that's Chris back there. Go make him feel awkwardly loved after this. Okay. So make it awkward. Um, so we're in the, in the book of Jonah. And look, again, as I said last week, this is just one of those, even if you're outside the church, you've never gone. You've heard of Jonah and the what? The whale. The Bible says great fish, but Jonah and the whale. Dude gets swallowed up in a whale, okay, because he was running from God. But what is the book of Jonah about? Three of you knew that. Let's try that again. What is the book of Jonah about? You have to not just say that. You actually have to believe it. You do. As we, and you can go online and see the sermon from last week um, as well. But I, in, very, in just a, like two minutes, I went through every book of the Old Testament and showed how ultimately it points to Jesus. You need to know that when people say, well, what about the Old Testament? You know, you're a Christian. What about the Old Testament? The whole Old Testament was pointed to Jesus coming. And this is one of the four prophets that Jesus referenced by name. By name. He said, that guy was a picture of me in the Old Testament. We love that. That's why we love the Old Testament. Right? It's just the preview of Jesus. Okay? And so we love Jonah. Jonah is about Jesus. It's not about Jonah primarily. It's not about the big fish primarily. It's not about the disgusting city of Nineveh. 
It's not primarily about any of those things. And so I've implored us to not get caught up in that imagery. Just like the book of Revelation, when I taught through that crazy book, word for word. People get so caught up in the, oh my, there's beasts and mountains being thrown. It's always, always has been, always will be about Jesus. You have to be able to see that in every book of the Bible. That's how God orchestrated it. That's why he orchestrated these events. Last week it said that he had already caught, he created this fish for this purpose. He didn't let him out a minute early because if he was only in there for two days, it wouldn't have been a picture of the grave of Jesus for three days. And so the book of Jonah is about Jesus and it has every implication for us today, today, now, 2015, this school year, this work week, tonight. It has every implication. It's every bit as true as it was then. And that's how God works. He, he not only uses events in their time to minister to people in their time, but then he has this time transcendent message. And so this book, though in the Old Testament, just seems so old and far back and crazy. It can minister to us tonight, even before you leave. And so we're in chapter three. I'll kind of give you the, the rundown of where we've been. The book just kicks off. I love it. Look, it, he doesn't waste any time with words, Jonah. He just doesn't. It says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it. This is in chapter 1. For their wickedness has come up before me. And what did Jesus, or what did uh, Jonah do? The Lord says, look, get up, go to Nineveh. And what did Jonah do? He said, no way. And he ran. It's about the equivalent of being in New York hitchhiking his way all the way over to San Francisco, hopping a boat and going to Hong Kong. He said, no way. It's a violent, bloody city. We'll see, I'll read Nahum again. Jonah thinks, look, at best, at best, I'm gonna be mocked, ridiculed, punched, and kicked out of the city. At best. What's more likely is I'm gonna show up, I'm gonna scream repentance, they're just gonna kill me and carry on. Just, they're just gonna kill, Done. You kidding me? They were killing their own people in this city, let alone a guy coming in preaching repentance. And so he's, look, God says, look, go. And he, Jonah says, no. And I was like, silly Jonah, <laughs> silly, silly Jonah. And then Jesus shows up and says, go into all nations, preach. And we're like, nah. See, it's not even funny for you. You're like, I'm not a pastor. I don't, I'm, that's your job. You clearly like it. You're yelling right now. We haven't even started. (laughs) Jesus shows up and implores us, commands us to preach the gospel. Every one of you, he wasn't just talking to pastors. To talk to your friends, to go into the cities of Nineveh, to go into people that just completely disagree with you, to go into atheist circles, to go into cult circles, to go into homosexual cultures, to go into just depraved scenes. Jesus did that. Jesus didn't just hang out with the religious people. In fact, he fought with the religious people and hung out with who? Prostitutes and tax collectors. Now, that's not a game plan for how you should plan out your Friday nights, okay? So, I mean, well, then game on, right? But no, Jesus was in the world, but he was not what? Of the world. We're called to be in this world, which means we can't be separatists, but not what? Of this world, which means we can't be culturalists either. We can't be separated from culture. I just get together with my church friends. I got InterVarsity and I got Sunday nights and a Bible study in my own dorm room. And 
I don't talk to them. We can't be separatists. But some of you are like, well, whoa, whoa, saved by grace, bro. Right? It's the international sign for drunkenness, if you don't know, okay? I'm saved by grace. I know Jesus is totally fine. I'm in college, right? Let's do this. Saved by grace. And you abuse grace because you want to be a culturalist. Jesus says you go into those dark places of culture. You go into every vestige. Look, 99% of you are never going to be pastors on a staff at a church. 98% of you are going to work for an organization or a company at some point that has absolutely nothing to do with advancing the gospel. I am one of those. If you don't know my story, I'm not a pastor full-time. I'm not on staff. Okay? I go to a secular job tomorrow morning as a marketing director at a consumer product firm in Calabasas. Okay? And I'm to go into the dark world of business and be a light. Some of you are going to go into the dark world of art. Some of you go into the dark world of sports. Some of you are going to go into the dark world of sociology or counseling or business or whatever it is, psychology, sociology, whatever you're going into, it's going to be dark. I do a men's discipleship group with, anyone seen Act of Valor, the movie, Act of Valor? Y'all need to get out more. Holy smokes. Room full of separatists. No, they cuss in that movie. I don't know. <laughs> Go see Act of Valor. It's crazy. It's about Navy SEALs. I'm in a discipleship group with the producer of that movie. Like, whoa, he's in Hollywood. He would say, yeah, I'm in Hollywood. He tells us every, every Thursday, we're like, oh, tell us, what's the story? Are you with Spielberg this weekend? He's like, no, I was with Clint Eastwood's son this week. Oh, it's epic. He's like, dude, Hollywood is dark. It is dark. Look, your school is dark. I went to Kowloon. People are like, oh, a Lutheran school. Luther's flipping in his grave right now. So you're at a state school. You're like, it's dark. You're called to be there by God. You can't just say nah. You can't say no. Jonah did that. And God arrested him. He stopped him. Some of you are like, well, he hasn't thrown me into a whale, but perhaps this study just stops you. That's how the, tri- the time transcendent messages is to stop. You're going into a new school year. You're going to a new work week. And you've just been running. God says, stop. And we saw that in chapter two. Or in chapter, you know, God stirs up the storm in chapter one. And he did it. We love the Jesus that calms the storm. We don't want to talk about the God that creates it. Stirs up the ocean. He's got this fish ready. The purpose of this fish's creation was to hold Jonah. We see at the end of chapter one, all the sailors get religious, right? Start praying to their gods. They figure out, look, it's got to be a guy sleeping at the bottom of the boat. Drag him up to the top. Is this you? Is you do this? You're your God? So yeah, and then Jonah says what? Hey, chuck me over. It's me. Throw me overboard. And they, they actually don't even do it. Why? Like in front of this God that's doing this? No. So they start rowing. And they get nowhere. They're like, all right, well, God, we're, this is about to happen. Don't hold us accountable. And they chuck him. And this fish comes and gets Jonah. This great fish. And he goes into three days. He goes into this fish. For three days, he's arrested by God. He stopped. He says, you've been running from me, Jonah. I need to hold on to you for a little bit. It's this epic picture of the grave, as Jesus himself said. As Jonah went into the belly of the great fish for three days, so too will the son of man go into the grave for three days. And he stops Jonah, right? And we see Jonah, 
some people, you know, they think on the third day he started praying finally. It's not what he said. When he records his prayer in chapter two, it's because he'd been praying the whole time and God answered him. It was this, this epic picture of prayer of deliverance. He said, I've been delivered. And yet he's still sitting next to like the small intestine. He's like, I've been delivered. God heard me. And he's still in the fish. And we took a look at the fact that, look, even in the midst of your trial, even in the midst of God grabbing you and arresting you and all your circumstances plummet, when God promises deliverance, he will come through. And Jonah's like, I've been delivered. People are like, you're still in the belly. But God said, I'm going to be delivered from this. And Jonah trusted him. And at the very end of the chapter, what, what does the whale do? The great fish do? Just barfs him back up. Just onto dry land. Deliverance isn't always pretty, but it's always good. And so Jonah gets spewed back up, just, right? Just wiping himself off three days in the guts in chapter three. And he says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You act like God's going to change his mind because you ran. Okay, well, if you don't want to do that, then I'll change my game plan. You don't have to go into all the nations, as Jesus says. You don't have to preach the gospel. You don't have to make disciples. You don't have to be in fellowship. He stops you and he arrests you, and he comes back to you. He comes back to Jonah. He says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise. It's almost like he's going to say the exact same thing, slightly different. But he says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Preach to it the message that I tell you. And so he changes it just a bit. Before, if you look back in chapter one, it says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for the wickedness has come up before me. So instead of cry out against Nineveh, God says, go and await further instruction. Now he's going he's gonna to put Jonah's faith on the line. Go, go into that decrepit city. I've got this from the commentator Alexander. By paralleling here the book's opening remarks, almost word for word, the author skillfully conveys the idea that Jonah is being offered a new beginning. A new beginning. Some of you have gone through trials. God has arrested you. He stopped you. You got really hopped up on yourself and he had to put you back down a bit. Right? Anyone felt like that? No one. Awesome. Yay. Never. Never. Life's awesome all the time. Liars. Right? And you've been arrested. You've been stopped dead in your tracks. He says, you're away from me. You're away from your faith. You're away from your trust in me. I'm going to come back to you now. I'm going to impress on you what I said before, because that hasn't changed. But your faith will be, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be tested now, because a faith that's untested is not a faith at all. It's just knowledge, right? It's not faith. There's not unknown. So he says, I'm I'm, going to put your faith, I'm going to put you on this, this faith walk. And so he goes into Nineveh to preach to the city. Preach to it the message that I tell you. And I'll read again from Nahum. This, look, this, if you haven't been here, this is, a, this is a disgusting city. God himself 
in the book of Nahum 3, 1 through 5, describes it as this. says, woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. He says, like, this is exactly like L.A. That's what he says. He says, its victims never depart. Its victim never departs. When you're in Nineveh, you're trapped in Nineveh. And you are described as a victim. It says the no- This is just creepy. Think about this. Just, just listen to this imagery. It's just creepy. Like we love T.O. We're like the, the sound of the wind through the, the trees. We go down to the beach to listen to the waves crash. You know, car, we're, we're even like, oh, the 101. It's so annoying. Like cars. Like we're just like, ah, I want to be off in Dos Vientos. Right? And it says the noise of a whip. And the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. The streets are lined with dead bodies. Like, wow, is this like a metaphor for something? No, actual, literal, physical, dead people all over the city. All over the city. We picked that stuff up as fast as possible. We moved to the coroner's office. They have none of that. There's simply piles of bodies. They stumble out from the bar at 1 a.m. and they trip over people they knew. A wicked city. Disgusting. It says, countless corpses, they stumble over the corpses because of the multitude of harlotries, of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Behold, God says this himself. This is a quote. This has to be the most terrifying thing you would ever hear spoken about your city. God says, behold, I am against you. I am against you. Says the Lord of hosts. And again, we look at Nineveh as this decrepit enemy of God. But the Bible declares explicitly that we were once, even as Christians now, we were once enemies of God. By nature, children of what? Wrath. We cannot even see ourselves superior As Christians, we cannot see ourselves as superior as Americans. Certainly not with the 60, 70, 80 million dead bodies that are on this country's hands in the form of abortion. Are you going to parallel this with abortion? You better believe it. And it's never been more evident that those actually are babies than right now. As they release video after video after video, calculated. I, 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 look, I love the way they're doing that. They knew right away. And if you take a look at the video series, they're just getting more and more explicit on purpose. 
first video came out, they're like, oh, no, but they're kind of just there. But nothing about, about the price. There was never any pro- Oh, second video talks about the price. Oh, but they're not really talking about actual parts. A, oh, third one comes out. Now we're talking about parts. Calculated. Christians are saying we are standing and stumbling over dead babies in America. And we to ourselves were once enemies of God. We cannot ever elevate ourselves above that. And so they're stumbling over these bodies. It says, arise again in chapter three, arise, go to Nineveh. That's the city he's talking about. That great city and preach to it the message that I tell you. Who wants to go, who wants to have a ministry to that city? Who of you want to go in there? I think of, of Emily who I just wrote a letter of recommendation for, who's going down into LA to work at the Dream Center for sex trafficking, human trafficking, prostitution, recovery. She's going to go into the city and flip a candle on because it just gets darker every day. It says, go in there. Go into that area of life. Go into that business world. Go into the entertainment industry. Go into your college campus. Go in and preach to it. And as we've talked about in the past, look, sometimes the best preaching is just simply a testimony of what God has done for you. You don't have to prove anything. Just tell people what God has done for you, how Jesus showed up and radically changed your life. That's where preaching begins. So it says, go into that great city. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now he's obedient. Now he's obedient. Some of you showed up thinking that, look, I'm just not called to preach. I'm just not called to go into ministry. I'm not called to talk. I'm not an evangelist. I can tell you the Ark of the New Testament speaks to the fact that all our saints, all our priests, all are called with the same calling if you call yourself a Christian, which is to proclaim Jesus in every vestige of society. I'm responsible for conveying that truth to you. You're responsible for what you do with it. Not me. God's not going to drag me before him and say, look, why didn't, why didn't Sarah preach at school? It's not my role. My role is to proclaim God's truth. Yours is to believe it as Jonah believed it and obey it as Jonah obeyed it. Doesn't mean that you're obnoxious. Doesn't mean you're at work standing up on your cubicle screaming about Jesus because you get fired. You do no good then. But it means that when those opportunities arise, and you should pray for those opportunities. There's a scary prayer. You should pray for those opportunities to preach to them the message that the dying world needs to hear because you were at one point dying and God got his message through you. And so God's gonna go into Nineveh now where they're stumbling over bodies. It's so bad. Look, I I told you, I've been to combat. We clean up bodies quick in combat. People get trucks, bam, bam, get stuff. I got pictures. Just clean up. They didn't even care in Nineveh. It says, go into that city. Now Nineveh, it says in the second part of verse three, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Some historians believe it was the biggest at the time, the biggest city. It says this, it says, a three-day journey in extent. That's ancient language for it took three days to walk around it. You can look if you, if you can get a lot, of, you can cover a lot of miles if you walk for three days. 
We're not really in shape for it. Really? But three days walking, this is a massive city. And he's called, he says, go in. Look, it looks like a really, really, really big picture. Look, look, CLU, Channel Islands, the business world, the entertainment industry, it looks massive. Looks ma- I can't do a thing in that. Look, I can't, I can't preach to Channel Islands. I can't preach CLU. I can't, look, my business is 5,000 people. It's just too big. None of that. None of that causes God any pause. Oh, it's too big for Jonah. You can't, one, one guy. He's probably tired after three days. No food, no water in the belly. No, go in. I don't care how big what's in front of you is. I don't. You are to respond to your calling, your place, your position. People that God puts in your life. Jonah goes into this massive city. Three days it would take to walk around it. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, now keep in mind, we see this in the Bible as one verse. Okay? You've got to think about practically a city takes three days. Do you think he walked in and said, hey, could we just get everyone to collect in the courtyard? That'd be great. Thanks. I have something I need to say. And then everyone in the span of this three days around just comes. And says, you got something for it? No. He goes in and it's hard work. We see he just went in and started preaching. Like, oh, wow, that's great. He gave one quick sermon and chapter three is over. Daily, house by house, street by street, block by block. Look, day by day, at your work, project by project, at your school, assignment by class, by by semester, by year. It's a grind. Jonah went in and started grinding this message. In obedience, knowing that God was going to do something through him. It wasn't about what he had to say. It was about about what God would say through him. One of the things that I've been really pressing on myself is like, when I get into counseling situations, I get into some, I'm not even on staff and I have people that come over to my wife and I for, for marital counseling and, and, and the prayer I pray most is not like God fix them because I can't, although I say that one a lot too, but, but it's just look, the Bible says if anyone lacks wisdom, he need but ask God for it. Oh, I don't have any training in counseling. I don't have any training in so many things a lot of times that I get thrown into. To me, like, I'm not an apologetics guy. I'm not an evangelist. I haven't done a 12-step program to proclaiming Jesus in the modern culture. I haven't done any of that sort of stuff. You just simply, look, I, I lack wisdom. That's a great place to be. I lack wisdom, God. You are wisdom. I need you to just show me what to say in this regard. It's like, okay, how do I, I need a template. I need a, you just need to get on your knees and God will start to present those things. And when you're a vessel, God will use you. When you're an empty vessel, you bring a full vessel, say, all right, give me some stuff. Like, I don't, there's no room in you. I can't pour anything into that. When you empty yourself, when, when you're before him repentant, doesn't mean you think lowly of yourself. It just means that you don't think anything about yourself at all. Think about what God is doing in your school, in your work, in your city, in your job, in your family, in your friend circles, in your relationship. I'm an empty vessel before you. Use me. Jonah, this empty vessel now, after three days, walks into the city and starts getting on the grind. We don't think about that, but he's, he's, he's walking through this massive city. He's stepping over body. I'd like to tell you guys about something. I need, I need you guys to know. He's going house by house. Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, yet 40 days... 
Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the God that said, I am against you is coming for you. That's what he said. And we get the truncated version. He was preaching a lot, but this is what he saw fit to record. He said, look, the God that's against you is coming for you. And check this out. Verse five. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. There it is. They're like, what? Are you serious? Repent. People are like, you're right. Right? You, want, you, you almost like want to fight. You're like, where's the epic? Where's the... There's got to be another book where like some of you right now, right tonight, like I just pray that as we talked about before the sermon, when I say we need to repent of our sins, I pray that just some of your hearts are like, you're right. And it ha- some of you are like, I need more than that. The city of Nineveh didn't. But, but it's got to be way more complex than that. doesn't appear to be. You're a sinner. Jesus saves. Repent. And he, I, I, it was, so the people of Nineveh believe God. They believe God. Look, we don't have to make a lot out of what the Bible is saying was a pretty easy gig. For all the decrepitness, for all the stench of that city, he goes in and looks, sometimes you're just so deeply stooped in your sin. You are so deeply stooped in your gossip life. You are so deeply stooped in your, your, your viewing of pornography, of your greed, of your pride, of your ego, of your belittling of other people, of your lack of love. You're so saturated in it. I pray that at that point, at that depth, when you hear repent, you're just like, that's a good idea, actually. I like that. It's kind of refreshing. I thought I was going to have to do a lot of stuff. Turn from it. We'll go into repentance a little bit more. But we're going to see a couple things here in verse 5. It says, so the people of Nineveh believed God. Repentance begins with a belief. A belief, a faith. That God is who he says he is. You are who he declares you to be. And there is a solution. They believed. The people of Nineveh believed that they were sinners. In that moment, they believed God. God, you are holy, perfect. You are the standard. You created man perfect, and we ran from you. They believed that. They believed God. God, you are who you say you are. And they believed that they were, we are, what he declares us to be. Because it doesn't matter what anyone else says about you. Wow, you're amazing. It doesn't really matter. Or you're awful. No one's going to care. It doesn't really matter. You are not who the world says you are. You are who Jesus says you are. That's the foundation of identity. They believe God. God, you are who you say you are. You are holy. You are set apart. You are all-knowing, all-loving, all-gracious, all-merciful. And I ran from you. And I continue to run from you. Every morning I wake up and choose something or someone over you. And you said you'd provide the solution. I believe you. So repentance begins with this belief 
The people of Nineveh believed. They proclaimed a fast and put on a sackcloth. They did something about it. Oh, is this a work of right? No. They did something about it. See, a lot of you have been made to believe that repentance is just simply a head game. I just have to say, I repent. And there it is. There, I, I repented and nothing changed. True repentance will work itself out in a change. Not only a change of the heart, but a change of your hands and your actions and your work and your deeds. They did something about it. They declared a fast, which is absurd in America. That I would go three hours, four hours, eight hours a day, two day. Now this is just getting absurd. I'm going to call the cops. I demand to eat every six hours. I demand to eat every three hours with chips in between. <laughs> Probably Pringles because they're sprinkled with demon dust, I swear. <laughs> they did something about it. They proclaimed a fast and they put on a sackcloth, which was a really elegant piece of clothing, if you don't know your history. It's basically like putting a dead animal on yourself. It's made of goat hair, okay? When you go to the petting zoo, let's be honest, you don't even touch the goats. Where are the bunnies? The goats are just, just the gnarly hair. Just grab this thing, just freak, just. No food, sackcloth. Why? Why the no food? Why the sackcloth? It was a picture. It said, look, we're going to deny ourselves what the earth considers to be luxuries. What the earth considers to be just what you deserve. Look, you had a hard day. Go deep into that six pack. Right? Look, you don't have a girlfriend right now. Get on the internet. You don't have an outlet for that. Ladies, she's got clothes that you just, you know what? Just, just tear her apart on girls' night. Tear her apart in your head. Compare yourself. Terrorize her in your head. Just, she is just a piece of... The world said, you've earned it. And these people are like, we'll deny that. Deny these earthly luxuries, these, these worldly pleasures, if you will. We'll deny that. Repentance is a belief in God, and it's a change of action as well. And so whatever sin you drug here tonight, too, I pray that you believe who God says he is. That he is bigger than all of this. He is bigger than your addictions. He is bigger than your gospel. He is bigger than your comparisons. He is bigger than your boss. He is bigger than all the things. All these worldly pleasures. He is better, more satisfying, more loving. I tell my boys every night, I say, I love you. I say, Jesus loves you even more. I want them to know that, I want them to see the picture of how much dad loves us and then every night be reminded that Jesus loves them even more than I ever could. I am not the standard of love for my boys. Say, daddy loves you. And then they repeat it. They both, I say, I love you. And they say, I love you. I say, Jesus loves you more. Jesus loves you more. And then I say, Jesus wins. And they go with a sword. That's just where we are right now in our relationship. (laughs) 
And now they've started to add attributes from Revelation 19, which just really gets me. They're like, Daddy and his eyes are like fire. I'm like, oh, you guys melt me. <laughs> he's got a horse. And, and they're even talking about how he's got something written on his leg. I'm like, oh, oh, the next generation of Revelation 19ers, okay? But I love you this much. If you had great parents, you need to know God is even greater. If you had terrible parents, you need to know that God is even greater. He is who he says he is. We are the beloved children of that dad. And that stirs in us a change. We turn from that. We trust him that his ways are higher than our ways, that he'll give us a peace that surpasses all understanding, that he's collecting all our tears in a bottle, that he will mend every broken heart, that he will restore this earth. He will crush sexual trafficking. He will crush sin in this world. He already has. Even from the belly, we can praise him for our deliverance. Even in America, right now, before Revelation, we can say, we've been delivered from this. This is not the end game. I know how it ends. And so repentance is, it begins with this belief, this action they proclaim to fast and put on a sackcloth. I love this too. It says, from the greatest to the least of them. Big idea. It doesn't matter your station in life. Everyone. The rich folks and the poor folks. Repentance is for the rich people. Repentance is for the poor people. Rich people think they're above repentance. Poor people think they're not even worthy of it. From Beverly Hills all the way down to the homeless. Repentance is for us. Doesn't matter your station in life. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how much power you aggregate. I don't care what sort of business or corporations or organizations you run. Repentance from the greatest to the least. And that's not God's scale. He's simply putting it into perspective because we just operate in that scale on earth. It's not like, well, some of you are better. It's for you. Like he's, he sees Look, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. I don't care where you came from. I don't care what your inheritance is. I don't care if you're a trust fund baby. I don't care if you lived in SoCal and had a comfortable life your whole life. Repentance is for you. Some of you come from a harder background. You're working your way up. Repentance is for you. From the greatest to the least of these, it says, Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, verse 6, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with the sackcloth and sat in ashes. Just desperation before God. You are who you are every bit in, in, in an unfathomable manner. You are who you say you are and I am exactly who you say I am. And again, this isn't thinking lowly of ourselves. It's thinking of the utmost of God. It's the utmost of God. You get closer to Jesus, it's not that you think less of yourself, it's that you see him so much higher and more lifted up that even the smaller sins become grievous acts of treason before a holy and precious God. Just before G. 
Jesus, just the littlest things. I think of Brett. He's not here, is he? No. Look, <laughs> I'm in discipleship group with Pastor Brett. And it's hilarious because a lot of us bring like big sins to the table. I believe that Brett's closer to, to Jesus in his walk than me right now. And, and we bring big sins. Like, and Brett's like, my driving is so, I'm like, seriously, Brett, you're driving? But he knows his heart. He knows that he gets frustrated. He gets like road rage. He's just got to be aggressive and domineering, right? Something like that is silly. Let's talk about some real sin. But, and again, it's not that Brett's better than me, but he's deeper into this process of sanctification than me. And that stuff crushes him because he knows his heart. It crushes him. Some of you laugh at you guys pray over like traffic habits in your discipleship group? That is worthless, right? <laughs> it's not because Brett knows. Brett knows. Like, and the Apostle Paul, he began his ministry as a sinner and he ended it as the chief of sinners. Doesn't mean he sinned more, just means that he saw every act as a, as a growing, increasing affront to the holiness of God. And the king, from the grace to the lead, the king is just. He's on, his, he's on his seat now. He's down. He's not thinking lowly of himself. He's just seeing himself in light of the gospel, which is God is perfect and he created us and we rebelled against him. We rebelled against God. You've rebelled against God today. You've drugged your sin in here and rebelled against him and we're gonna do it again tomorrow. Repentance is an ongoing process. By sanctification, you'll never be sinless, but by the grace of God, you'll sin less. But don't be surprised if you feel worse about it. And the king now, just tossing ashes on himself, wearing one of these goat robes. And the king, it says, caused it to be proclaimed that the published and published throughout Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. That's brutal. Human body can last about three days without water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, even the animals, right? Like cows are wearing goat hair now. They're identifying that, that sin has broken Everything. Sin has broken everything in the earth. In Romans, Paul speaks of the fact that creation itself screams to be reconciled to God. It groans to be reconciled to God. Sin has fractured all of creation. Are you saying that animals sin? What I'm saying is that sin has permeated creation. That's why we have earthquakes. That's why we have tsunamis. That's why we have natural disasters. It's not because of anyone's particular sin. It's because the earth has been fractured by sin. Creation itself groans to be perfect again. He says, look, cover everything. Sin has permeated every vestige of this society, the king says. Stop eating. Stop drinking. Deny yourself the worldly pleasure, he says. But let man and beast be covered with a sackcloth and cry mightily. To God. Some of you approach repentance with caution. Because you believe repentance is what the world says it is. It's not. It's a gift. The Bible talks about God granting people repentance. It's like a gift. 
You're to grab that thing. You're to be ravenous about that thing. Jesus showed up and the first words he uttered in his preaching ministry where the time is now, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Because he didn't see repent as this bad thing. He saw it as this good thing. It was a gift to people. Some of you are at, at caution because you've seen in the media how some nutburgers in the South use the word repentance. That's not how it's intended. You need to have a restored and renewed understanding of repentance. It's a lifeline. God throws out the, the line with the little, what is it called? You're a lifeguard, the little circle at the end. Lifesaver. That's probably where they came up with the candies. The life preserver. He throws it out there. People are like, I don't know. I've seen on TV how those things work. I'm just going to keep trying to. He throws it out. He throws out repentance. He says, take it. He says, cry out mightily, unabashed, which is what we're going to do with the worship service after this, except for all you people that are perfect. You have nothing to sing about really, actually. Okay. (laughs) Worship's an outpouring of your heart. I don't sing. I don't sing. (laughs) You don't want to hear me sing. But God throws out this repentant gift. I'm going to go back. I'm going to do some work with God after this. Before God, knowing who he is and who I am, bring some things to the table that I haven't even been processing. Even in my personal prayer life, I don't want to bring up certain things because we feel exposed. We are exposed. It says, sin is fractured. Everything. He says, cry mightily to God. I pray some of you tonight finally cry mightily to God. Not with caution. Not with caution. You come boldly before the throne of grace knowing that God will not give you what you deserve and give you that which you do not deserve. He says, cry mightily to God. Yes, let every one turn from his evil way. Turn. Everyone say turn. Everyone say turn. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn? Everyone say turn and relent. And turn away. Everyone say turn. Away from his fierce anger. And I've talked about this in the past. God has every right to be angry. American Christians don't want to deal with that. We want kumbaya Jesus. We want a mean angry God of the Old Testament. Who between Malachi and Matthew spent about 400 years of silence where he clearly got therapy. And he sent Jesus to apologize for the mean old God of the Old Testament. That's what we want. We don't want a God that ultimately and righteously has anger. But I'm telling you, you cannot understand, you cannot scratch the surface of God's love until you begin to understand his wrath. You can't. Anyone that refuses to talk about the wrath of God is betraying you from the pulpit. Betraying you. It's not that it makes you afraid of God, it makes you even more a worshiper of God. That you understand where you should be and where he's placed you. Heaven is not a place for people that are afraid of hell. It's for a place for people who love Jesus because he saved you from hell. Can't scare anyone into heaven. Many a preacher try. He says, turn, turn, relent. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger? Sin angers God. I just need you to know that. 
Not to scare you, but to stir in you. Turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And that's a question. And check this out. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented. God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Check this out. Some of you are like, that makes Jonah a false prophet. Right? If God says something and it doesn't come true, guess what that is? False prophet. Now, if we still lived in Old Testament times, false prophets were to be what? Stoned. Okay, so when you get these Christian weirdos that start talking about, I know when the next God told me about the next 9-11 and it didn't happen. Okay, Old Testament times, should have stoned those guys. Need another Bible a little better. We don't, by the grace of God. But this would have made Jonah a false prophet, yes? Yeah? No. <clears throat> that was a trick. You fell for it. It says this in Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom of, this, of what this was both, yes? City of Nineveh, within a nation, with a king, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. Jonah brought a message that they would be destroyed. That was 100% true. It's 100% true. And he offered them repentance. And they took it. And God says, now I will not destroy you, which makes Jonah 100% true. Makes God's word 100% true. Would he destroy them? You better believe it. And he threw them a lifeline. And they took it. And then in accordance with his word, he said, now I'll spare you. It's this epic picture. It's this epic picture of what Jesus did on the cross. He says, you're headed for destruction. You are by nature children of wrath. You were once an enemy of God. Before you were beloved, you were an enemy of God. And then I threw you a lifeline. Knowing very well that in our pride, in our ego, many, most would reject it. And God is true to his word in both instances. He says, those that turn, those that turn from that which is destroying you. I know it feels great. The Bible says sin is sweet for a season. It is, yeah? But notice it says season. And seasons what? They change. It says, I will destroy you. I will destroy destroy you. And then he throws a lifeline. Your sin is separating you from God and then he throws a lifeline. And for those that grab onto it, you'll make God out to be 100% true because then he says, welcome in. I will not destroy you. You've turned from your ways. And then we look to the cross. It says turn and we look to the cross. And repentance was embodied 
on the cross. Now keep in mind this. If you read the book of Nahum, you know that what happens to Nineveh? They do get judgment. Right? If you read Nahum, 150 years later, new generation, they revert back. God does judge Nineveh. You turn back to that, there is still judgment. You let go of that life raft, there is still judgment. Read Revelation. For those that are on the wrong side of Jesus, it does not work out well. It doesn't. But for those that hold that lifeline, instead of destruction, God offers glorification. And it said turn, and it says turn, and it says turn, and it says turn, and that's the picture of repentance. And some people search the scripture looking for the process of repentance, the epic picture of repentance. What's the big embodiment? What's the best look at repentance? How can I possibly understand what repentance is? And I would simply, as God did with me when I struggled with this concept a few years ago, he said, look at the cross. That's repentance. I said, that's crazy because God didn't have, or Jesus didn't have to repent of anything. Why on earth would I, and this is me arguing with God on the motorcycle. Why would I look at the cross as a picture of repentance? God says, I need you to do, I want you to do, I desire that you do with your sin what I did with your sin. And so on the cross, the Bible says, not that Jesus represented your sin. The Bible does not say that on the cross, Jesus became a terrific picture of your sin. A giant metaphor for your sin. This is sort of what it would look like if sin were to, the Bible says on the cross, Jesus became your sin. Became your sin. Now, some people say he couldn't have become it. He was the, 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 the no sin touched him. He was, he was blameless. He was the spotless lamb. You're a hundred percent correct, which makes him the only one that could become it. The only one. Jesus says, he who knew no sin became sin. And what did God do from Jesus on the cross? What did he do to Jesus on the cross? This is God turned from him. He screamed out from the cross. He said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned from him. God the Father turned from Jesus because he became your sin. And so as it implores you, turn, turn, turn. It says, turn from your sin. And what did God the Father do with Jesus as your sin? He put him to death. You're called to turn from your sin and put it to death. Jesus became your sin and was destroyed as your sin. He took it into the grave. He took it down to hell and he dropped it off. And it says three days later, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, three days later, Jesus would be delivered from the grave, raised by the power of the Holy Spirit, delivered from the grave, in deliverance of all sin, past, present, and future. Jesus has already won. The gospel is not that you can overcome your sin. 
Some of you in American church have been made to believe that the gospel is you can overcome your sin. It's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus already has. That's what separates the gospel from all the false religions on the planet. Jesus already has. So tonight, I'm going to ask the worship band to come back up. Tonight is about this, simply about this. Believing who God says he is who he is. Believing God is who he says he is. That he is perfect, that he is holy, that he is set apart. That he is the creator of you. And we, as his creation, have sinned against him. Bent for destruction. Tonight we worship, not because we're afraid of hell, but because we love Jesus, that he came into the world as a lifeline, preaching repentance, so that we could turn from our sin, put it to death, and get on with mission. So tonight before that God, the God that the king of Nineveh sat before and said, I now strip myself of these worldly pleasures. I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to put it to death. We now sing to Jesus who came into the world to spend three days in a grave so that death would not overcome us. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that tonight would be radical, but it would also be very simple. I don't need to make your message any more complex than it was. You saw fit to use Jonah to go into a wicked city, a bloody city, a corpse-laden city. Say, you guys are sinners, and the lifeline is repentance, and they believe God. And so for the Christians, for the non-Christians, I pray that this message falls equally weighted on the hearts of the people here tonight. That Jesus, you are the lifeline. For those that haven't clung to you, I pray tonight they grab that lifeline. For the Christians, I pray that they be encouraged that they are holding on to the only lifeline. Jesus, you call us to repentance. And so tonight I pray that you just fascinate us on that concept, that you perfected it on the cross that you took upon our sin and God saw fit to turn from you, to break eternal communion with you so that we could be entered into your presence. So Jesus, be glorified tonight. We thank you for being that lifeline, for preaching repentance, which we get as a gift. We get to repent. Holy Spirit, go to work on the people here. Go to work in every heart. Bring up every issue that you need to speak to them on tonight. Not for my glory, not for their glory, not for the churches, not for America's glory, but for your glory alone. Jesus, we love you. We can't wait to see you again. This is all for you. In Jesus' name, amen.